0: Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians where Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have learned while we were memorizing the Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. This podcast is intended for medical professionals. The information is to be used in the context of your own clinical judgment, and those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and even though the magic of podcasting may make it seem like we're speaking directly in your ears, this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention.
1: On today's episode, we have Dr. Stephanie Sog, a clinical psychologist at the Weight Center at Mass General and an assistant professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School. We go through effective ways to discuss weight management with your patients, but make no mistake, this is not a discussion on how to lose weight. This is a discussion on effective ways to discuss weight, which carries with it stigmas from society and the house of medicine. This is hugely important for establishing rapport with your patients who are struggling with their weight. And without rapport, any advice is next to useless. We discuss the power and importance of language, what person-first language is, why and how to avoid such terms as obese, morbid, exercise, polarizing terms like good and bad, and alternatives to the judgment-laden question, why? Welcome back to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. We have a very special episode today. Um, A few weeks ago, there was an article from the Huffington Post circulating around Facebook uh, among myself and my physician friends. And it was titled, Everything You Know About Obesity Is Wrong. And it was, in some ways, lambasting the medical community for not knowing how to talk to patients if weight was an issue. And it gave many specific examples of patients who had had interactions with the medical community that were so negative that they remembered it for, for years and, and it affected them in, in severe ways. And so it really illustrated what the wrong, way, the wrong way to talk to someone about this is. But the question for us as physicians is what is the right way. So I reached out to one of the PhDs who was quoted in the article, and she was kind enough to respond and agree to be on the podcast today to talk to us about how, to, how we can do that better, how we can relate to those patients. It's, it's so easy to say something without even intending it to, to be heard a certain way and the patient hears it that way, and suddenly they're alienated, and the entire relationship is destroyed. So we need to be very careful when we choose our words, and appropriately, this uh, this individual wrote an article called Bad Words about all the words that we tend to use that that we might think are okay to use, but as it turns out, are perceived very differently. So, so on the podcast today, we have Dr. Stephanie Sog, who is a clinical psychologist at the Weight Center at Mass General and an assistant professor of psychology at the medical school. She's also on the executive council for the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery. So Dr. Sog, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast today.
2: Well, it's my pleasure.
1: So so the first thing that you mentioned in that article talks about the power of language how how words can help shape our thoughts can can you speak to us a little about that
2: Yes well I think that that's that is a subject that's really near and dear to my heart it's a part of every interaction that I have with every patient and also with colleagues as well and as a clinical psychologist my main Tools are my words. But even going beyond sort of the clinician patient relationship, it's really important to be considering the words that you're using because we think in words. And so the words that we choose shape how we think about things. And that shapes our attitudes about things, which ends up shaping our behaviors, our emotional responses to things. Um, I think there's there's almost nothing more important than really being careful and thoughtful about the language that you're using to convey the ideas and the sentiments that you're trying to get across, whether you're speaking professionally, speaking to patients, speaking to anybody, really. And
1: especially with a, with a, a vulnerable population like this, uh, but, and, and as, as an authority, right? They're, they're looking up to us and so these interactions are are particularly um, important. So the the language is important in, in first establishing trust. I mean myself, exercise has always been a priority in my life, right And so I'm I mean in, it's gonna seem like a humble rag or whatever it's I'm in good shape and so I, it's I think it's sometimes challenging for the for me to connect with uh, patients that have issues that I've never, Encountered so so um, can, can you talk about the importance of of choosing these these words in, in establishing trust and um, a- and what can happen to an individual if that um, that trust is broken by uh, someone in authority?
2: Well, I think that if we're specifically talking now about a population of patients who have obesity, am I right in thinking that that's the specific thing that we're talking about right now?
1: Exactly, exactly.
2: So people with obesity, and I've been in my current position for 15 years, and I have talked to thousands of patients who have obesity, and there's no one profile, no one type. Everybody is very different from everybody else. But there are some common experiences that I hear from many of my patients. And feelings of self-blame are very, very strong. And part of the way that patients get to that feeling of self-blame is that they're given messages of self-blame all the time. And um, they are coming into a medical situation Especially if they're talking about their weight or talking about illnesses or medical conditions that are related to their weight, absolutely expecting to be blamed and shamed. And you can sort of see people sort of emotionally cringing, waiting for the recriminations, the scolding, the instructions and ordering. and to pile on to that when when your patient is already very vulnerable to perceiving that in the interaction even if it's not actually there it, you know it's it's ve- it's very important to be careful to avoid anything that is judging blaming shaming scolding um It's very unusual that somebody with obesity does not know that they have obesity. Um, There are some studies showing that there are people out there who have BMIs in the range of obesity, but don't categorize themselves as such. Um, But in general, people who have a high weight are acutely aware of that um, and are just sort of waiting to be called out about it. So being sensitive in your language and Making statements or asking questions in a way that telegraphs in a succinct way that you are not blaming them and not shaming them and that you're here to understand what's happening with them and do what you can to help right from the very beginning in the interaction is crucial.
1: So, what you're saying is they come into this thinking that they've done something wrong, almost that that They might even deserve to be this way, and are waiting for the doctor to validate what they're expecting them to say. And so, should we should we put that out in the open and say things like "This isn't your fault"? Uh, I, I, you know, how do I, um, other than trying to avoid saying something that makes it seem that I'm implying that it's their fault. Do do you think there's any advantage to just putting that out there and saying there are circumstances that are not in your control that have led to this issue and we can help you, um, but you have to recognize that this isn't your fault? I mean, is that the type of thing that we should be saying?
2: I think if you lead with this isn't your fault, it comes across as a bit hollow or goodwill hunting um that's what i, 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 that I thought yeah <laughs> exactly. that's there's, w- there's ways to communicate that without sort of putting it out there so baldly um okay. i i i actually do this more at the end of the interview once i have more information from them um but I, i'll at the towards the end of the interview i will ask the patient to tell me, what do you think have been the major contributors to your weight? And it's very interesting how few of them say, I was put on a depot provera shot and I gained 60 pounds. Or um I, you know, I had an injury and was laid up for six months. Or I think it's genetic because everyone in my family has obesity the most common answer to that is me. I'm lazy. I eat too much. And so I will take that opportunity to gently say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that there may be some things that you haven't mentioned. Do you remember 10 minutes ago when you told me that both of your parents had obesity and that three out of your four siblings have obesity? Do you think it's possible that genetics are playing a role? Or sometimes people have medical conditions that they don't realize are contributing. Polycystic ovarian syndrome makes it very easy to gain weight and very difficult to lose weight. And many of my women patients who have PCOS, when I ask them what's contributed to their obesity, they leave that out. And often they didn't even, no one even ever told them that this was a contributor. Or patients who have diabetes who are on insulin don't recognize and, and haven't really been educated that once you go on insulin, it is really easy to gain weight and it's really hard to lose weight. So pointing those things out to patients in a sort of an educational way directly gives them the message that you're blaming them less than they're blaming themselves. I, I do want to say it's important to also acknowledge if there are other contributors that are within the patient's control that could be contributing because it's important to address all of the contributors. And I've really almost never seen any cases of obesity where it was one major contributor that the person just ate too much and that was it, or they just didn't exercise and that was it. Um, Usually there's a number of things, some of which are controllable and some of which aren't. And orienting the patient to the approach that we're going to look at all of the things and we're going to treat them all equally and we're not going to judge any of them, but look at them as contributors that we could potentially address together. That's where a sense of trust and a feeling of not being judged comes
1: in. So you're not completely absolving them of responsibility because I I can almost feel some of the doctors listening thinking that like you can't just take away all of the personal responsibility. There is there there has to be an element of personal responsibility, but at the same time there are a lot more people that have obesity now than there were 20 years ago and it's not because there are now many more people who are weak-willed than there were 20 years ago there are right. external factors that are out of their control that are increasing the likelihood that this is going to be a problem for 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 more people so we have to right. address those external factors right. and that they can account for as well as addressing some of the internal factors you have to so what you're saying is rather than This is your fault. This isn't your fault. Where is this coming from? There are certain things that we can control and certain things that we can't control. Let's see what we can do about the things that we can control.
2: Exactly. And I would also note that to give a patient the message that all of, you know, that the obesity is being driven by things that cannot be controlled is equally damaging. Um, and I have had patients who, when, get, when they get the message that there's, there's biological, genetic, and other factors that are contributing, and it isn't their fault, what they hear is, it's hopeless, nothing can be done. And that's very discouraging also. So you, you really want to get away from what do we blame for this to let's look at all the contributors and try to sort out the ones that we can and and don't get down on yourself about the ones that can't be controlled. Not that they should get down on themselves about the things that can be controlled because that doesn't help them control those things either, but really looking at let's understand the factors contributing.
1: You come up with a, a strategy. You you lay exactly. it out you lay it out there. This is what these are all the things that are contributing. This is what we can do about the ones that we can control, and let's let's get to work on that. Um, That 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 sounds realistic and reasonable, and something that that we can do to to change how we discuss that in the office, rather than just you know one some one size fits all. Because sometimes what happens is people come in and say, "Well, what do you think about the ketogenic diet? What do you think about?" Um, going to CrossFit? What do you think about this? And the answer is, well, it's a whole lot more complicated than that, that That, 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 that it's never going to be that simple. So we have to talk about everything.
2: Absolutely. And because every person with obesity has different kinds of contributors, contributing in different proportions, there isn't one treatment that's going to work for everybody. So, the doctor that puts everyone on the Mediterranean diet, or the person that is just always prescribing the same medication, or sort of touting CrossFit to everybody—that's that's not going to work. You you need it, obesity is a multifactorial condition, and you need an arsenal of lots of different kinds of approaches.
1: So that is actually going to be. One one thing that we talked about in the pre-interview is what those approaches are is a podcast episode unto itself.
2: Oh yeah. Many podcasts. What
1: we're talking about today is choosing your language carefully. That's that's all we're going to talk about today. So if you're if you're if you're waiting with bated breath with the right diet to recommend to everybody, clearly that's not what you're going to be finding here or or in the future episode
2: anywhere. <laughs> yeah or
1: or, 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 yeah. or actually everywhere, because that information is everywhere, and they're all trying to sell something,
0: yeah um
1: yeah. I, so I think it's interesting the way you're you are phrasing um something in particular. you're saying that patients have obesity, yeah you're not saying obese patients. you're saying patients have obesity. C- can you talk about why you're phrasing it that way?
2: yes. Yeah. So there's a concept in healthcare, I'm guessing that your listeners are familiar with this concept from from other uh, areas of medicine, of person-first language, where instead of saying a diabetic patient, or worse, a diabetic, like just the person is the adjective, um, you are talking about the person as having the condition or attribute um, in question. And I think I would emphasize condition over attribute, especially here in uh, the realm of obesity. Obesity is now recognized by the AMA as being a disease. It is a medical condition that is characterized by having an amount or proportion of body fat that is known to pose risks to a person's health and be associated with many, many um, people talk about comorbidities, but a colleague of mine talks about complications of obesity because these illnesses don't just happen at the same time or happen with it, but are directly caused by obesity. So I think that talking about somebody as being obese, that's an adjective. You're equating the person with the condition instead of talking about the person having the condition, and you're separating the person from their condition. There's a great quote from an article that was published in the journal Obesity, and the authors are Ted Kyle and Rebecca Poole or it might be Rebecca Poole and Ted Kyle. I'm sorry, I don't remember what the order of authorship was, but they say obese is an identity, obesity is a disease. And that's the most profitable way, and I don't mean profitable in the sense of money, but productive and effective way to be thinking about obesity. Um, The word obesity has such negative connotations already that to turn it into an adjective that you're equating with the person makes it much worse.
1: And that also gets back to what you said about, at the beginning about the power of language. Because yeah. if you as the physician are talking about your obese patient, in your mind, inadvertently, you're going to be equating the patient with their illness and attributing things that you would attribute to someone with obesity, right, a lot of the stigmas, Right. that individual and and changes the way you think about that person. But if you can separate them in your language, then it can work to separate them in your thoughts. And again, because you're that authority, if you discuss it with them that way, it can help them to start thinking about it differently as well.
2: Absolutely.
1: And your colleagues. And,
2: and, to, and to model that for your colleagues as well.
1: Yeah. Um, because you're going to have plenty of colleagues that, that, don't necessarily put as much gravity into something like this well you know it's they they if they, if they're not motivated enough then i'm not i'm not going to try i made my recommendations they can choose to do with them what they will so for those individuals if you start speaking about it differently you can kind of you can have this subliminal effect on possibly how they they think about the topic as well
2: exactly exactly
1: um what about the word obese we we had talked about uh, that article what's in a name um people that have obesity how do they prefer what what are the words that they prefer to hear from us
2: yeah so there was a great study done Uh, Many years ago now, and sort of variations of it have been replicated in different populations and with younger people and with parents of kids who have obesity, where it looks at what what people's responses are to various words that might get used by a provider to talk about weight Um, and, you know, which rate them on a scale of really negative to Neutral to positive. And um, obesity is one of the, and I, I would say probably more the adjectival form of that obese is one of the words that patients sort of despise the most because it carries a lot of baggage with it. I think there's an argument to be made in modeling to patients by using the word obesity as a medical diagnosis and the medical condition and always using it in a person-first way, always using it in the noun form and not in the adjectival form. But even then, patients can be sensitive to it. Um, Patients, you know, greatly prefer things that are more neutral, like your weight or your BMI, your body mass index. I think a lot of people these days know what the body mass index is, I'm not sure that everyone knows how it's calculated or why we have that measurement or what the kind of cutoffs are uh, for BMIs and which BMIs would be in the range of obesity versus healthy weight, et cetera. Um, Another word that is sometimes used is fatness. Uh, That one's not very popular with patients. Fat and fatness. I can't imagine why. They should know the show should be avoided. Even things like unhealthy weight are preferred to obesity. I will sometimes talk about when I'm getting a history of someone's weight, I'll say, you know, when was your weight first over the healthy range or when did you first become concerned about your weight? And when I'm asking about family history of obesity, I usually don't say, uh, you know, did either of your parents have obesity? I'll say, did did either of your parents have a high weight? Um, or I will, when I'm talking to kids and I will ask them sort of to tell me what what they like and don't like about their weight, I'll say, what are some of the things that you are good or that you like about being your size? And what are some of the things you don't like about being your size? Very little kids sometimes think I mean their height. So that can be, (laughs) um, you know, very young children sometimes get confused by that. Um, But just using language that's sensitive, but also not completely shying away from the word obesity. If you're using it in a way that is clearly positioning it as a medical condition that you are treating the patient for rather than judging the patient about.
1: For some of the doctors that might not be used to thinking about it this way, these patients are reminded many, many times a day about their weight. It's not like you are never the first person to bring this. Like you said at the beginning of the podcast, you're never the first person to bring this to their attention. This is something that they're, that they're very cognizant about and they're constantly reminded of. And so it's you know saying something like, you know, when did you start realizing that your weight might be a problem? Um, you can very easily phrase something like that rather than saying, when did you become obese? Um, or when Certainly. did you, when did you, when were you diagnosed with obesity? Because they don't need to be reminded of it. They know it. Absolutely. And,
2: yeah. They, and, at 24 hours yeah. a day, maybe not when they're sleeping, but people are conscious and they're made conscious of it all the time. Yeah. But I, w- I will say that the one, the one permutation of the word obesity that I strongly suggest avoiding completely is the term morbid obesity, which is, it's a, it's a medical term, right? It's accepted medical terminology. The term morbid obesity technically simply means that the person's weight is causing harm to their health. Although it often gets used to simply signal the severity of the obesity, which technically isn't correct. If you have somebody who has very severe obesity, their BMI is 60, but they don't have any health conditions, technically it wouldn't quite be correct to call that morbid obesity because there isn't morbidity there. At least there's not yet. Um, and 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 there's also a terrible term that is used sometimes in, in my field in in articles that I read, super obesity, or sometimes super, super obesity, which just to me, it just sounds terrible. But there is a a classification system, class one, class two, class three, where class one is a BMI between 30 and 34.9, and class two is between 35 and 39.9, and class three is BMI of 40 and above, and there's even class 3A, class 3B, class 3C, and I actually don't remember what those are. Um, but that is not judging the way morbid is. But you can also talk about perhaps severe obesity, which does, if if you want to be emphasizing the degree of the condition, then you can say severe to so mean the BMI is, you know, particularly high or what have you. But morbid obesity doesn't really serve much of a purpose and it and if you think about what the latin root is for the word morbid it's associated with death and dying right that's it's not particularly helpful when you're talking to patients and i, I would say it doesn't really add much um incremental information or usefulness in professional dialogue either
1: i i think words like that might have a role in a scientific study if you are but then the classes then take the place of morbid obesity. If you're studying a group with a BMI greater than 40 or greater than 45 or greater than 50, fine, you, need, you, you might decide to use a term to classify those, those individuals, but when you're speaking to an individual patient, I, I don't really see the role of adding that modifier of morbid obesity no, not or even severe obesity, right? It's not like they don't recognize the severity of the problem because of what they're experiencing. They know that it is severe. Um, and then, but driving more attention to it, I don't think is of any benefit right. to them because right, that's even more of a stigma. They're going to make, it's going to make them feel even worse about it. Uh, they're going to internalize that and and it could really put them on, on a bad path. Um, so I would even argue that not even modifying it at all outside of a scientific study when you're di- when you're discussing it with the patient themselves
2: right and even in a scientific study there's no need for the word morbid there's other terminology that can be used that's actually mm-hmm. more precise so
1: um there was a, the next part of the article talks about good versus bad and my uh my sister-in-law if she's listening is a pastry chef and was trying to convince me that dark chocolate is good for you. And as a doctor, I see it as it's candy. No, it's bad for you. But your point in the article is that we're both wrong. So can you you elaborate on that and how that applies to um, the good versus bad and how that applies to our word choice?
2: Yeah. I mean, this is something that I harp on much with my patients that they learn to kind of catch themselves and self-correct mid-sentence when they're talking to me. Um, I really advise patients to avoid thinking about certain foods as being good or bad. The problem with good or bad is that that is a clear dichotomy. Those two things are mutually exclusive. They're categorical. And so you only have two choices, either something's good or it's bad. And if you're talking about food and you think of certain foods as being bad and you shouldn't have them, well, that may help you not eat them or eat less of them for a while, but eventually you're going to end up eating these things because the things that patients say are bad foods, those are actually delicious, (laughs) what I would call good foods, right? So you're going to end up eating foods like that. That's a part of life. It's an important part of life to sometimes have those foods that are higher in calories and fat and sugar. But the problem is that if you think of certain foods as being bad and then you have some of that food, you are it's an all or nothing proposition and you're going to feel like you blew it. You're going to conclude that you have no self-control and our beliefs about ourselves very strongly contribute to determining our behavior. If you believe you have no control, if you believe that you've blown it, you're going to behave in a way that makes sense if you're thinking that way. You're going to say, "Well, it doesn't matter. I blew it. Might as well, you know, quite literally, in for a penny, in for a pound." And that that kind of dichotomous thinking is it, it's part of the human condition. The human brain has evolved to think in dichotomous terms because it's quicker and usually more efficient. But it also then lends itself to some negative side effects. And this all-or-nothing, good-bad dichotomy can be really problematic. So, you know, when I, a patient tells me, well, I ate, when I eat something bad, and I say, well, what do you mean by bad? And they'll say, oh, like brownies. And I'll say, brownies aren't bad, they're good. They're not, if you have a lot of them, they're not good for your health. Um, but I tell patients to try to reserve the word bad for foods that taste bad or have gone bad, or are poisonous. And they're right in thinking they shouldn't eat any of those foods. Don't eat foods that taste bad. Certainly don't eat food that's gone bad or that's poisoned. But everything else, it's a matter of, is it more healthy or less healthy? Even dark chocolate, even milk chocolate. you know, Occasionally, that's something that's an enjoyable treat, and we shouldn't think of it as bad and something you should never eat. And there's also other foods that, that more, more clearly illustrate this. Um, avocado, right? We actually talk about avocado as being high in good fats. There are some fats that are actually helpful for your health. If you eat tons of avocado, then you're going to be taking in more fat and more calories than is good for your health. Nuts, peanut butter. Nuts are incredibly high in protein. They're high in fiber. They make you feel full. These are, you know, these are foods that, in moderation, are quite healthy for you. If you eat lots of them, it's going to have an adverse impact on your health and on your weight. So it's, you can't really say if food is good or food is bad, unless you're talking about how it tastes. Then I'm fine with it. And and patients also use those words to describe their own behavior. So they'll say, "I had a bad week" or "I was bad," and I always really jump on that and request that they restate that in a more objective way by simply describing what happened without judging it. I ate McDonald's four times last week. We don't have to call that good or bad. We can say that was three more times than you intended or three more times than you would have liked. But just calling it bad, not only doesn't help, but it kind of gets in the way. Because if you're feeling crummy about yourself, eating in a healthy way and maintaining that indefinitely, which is what all of us have to do to maintain a healthy weight or try to control our weight, that's hard. It takes a huge amount of emotional energy. And if you're using up a lot of that energy by feeling crummy about yourself, you're not going to have a lot of energy left over to be taking care of yourself and doing these difficult things that are required to manage your weight and your health.
1: And and, and I think that even circles back to to something we were talking about earlier, right? The, the, the personal responsibility and, you know, this is your fault. This is, this is not your fault. If they're saying things that are negative about themselves, that then shapes their thoughts. They internalize it. They feel even worse about themselves. And then, then they end up, you know, it's very hard to get out of that hole.
2: Absolutely. And, and I, one thing that I would bring in here is that There's a a very prominent concept in psychology called self-efficacy. And I don't know if that's something that um, is is featured in physician training, but self-efficacy is a concept that was, the term was coined by a psychologist named Albert Bandura, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It means your own beliefs about whether you are capable of doing something. And it turns out that research very robustly shows that the best predictor of whether somebody performs an intended or desired behavior or reaches a goal, the biggest determinant of that is their self efficacy, whether they believe they can do it or not. So if people are developing these beliefs about themselves that they can't control themselves, they have no willpower, they're lazy. Mm That is going to impede self efficacy, and it's actually going to create a major barrier to making change
1: i think I think it was America Ferrara had written an op ed in the New York Times a couple of years ago about training for the New York City Marathon, and when she was training her coach right because she's a movie star, so she has a coach to help her with the marathon um, uh-huh. her coach said something about the thoughts in her head like something relating to what is going on in your head? What are you telling yourself that's preventing you from, from doing this? And apparently, you know, her, she was telling herself that she couldn't do this. Who She's an yeah. She shouldn't be here. Who does she think she is trying to run a marathon? She can't do something like that. That's not, that's not who she is. And once he helped her get past that, then it was like a weight had been lifted off of her shoulders. And so it was these, these negative thoughts that she was telling herself about herself that were really holding herself back. So any way that we as physicians can help our patients without, like you said, the uh, goodwill hunting moment, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, right? Without being too saccharine about it. Anything that we can do to help the, uh, our patients think more positively about themselves are going to help them for that reason.
2: But not, not just generally more positively. It, it's not a, you no, know... But, but a belief about, But it, yeah, beliefs about their capabilities. Um, and again, it would be a whole different podcast episode to talk about the ways that you can approach um, helping patients with behavior change that foster higher self-efficacy and more success. That's a different podcast.
1: But I think something simple like just catching them when they... Are saying some negative attribute of themselves. It could be something as simple as that, right? Like, oh, I'm so stupid. I I I showed up late for another appointment, right? Catching them when they do something like that. I I don't mean you're you're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. I mean, just catching something simple like catching them when they do say something negative or attribute uh, give themselves a negative attribute to to help them reframe. Right. I um, mean,
2: I. I had a moment like that last week that a patient was trying to show me something on her iPhone and she couldn't figure out how to make the phone do what she wanted to do. And she said, dummy to herself. And then she showed me whatever it was. And I, you know, I said, you know, I want to take a moment and um, look at, at something that you just said that you, you, you couldn't do this thing on the phone and you called yourself a dummy. And I was really struck by that. And, you know, I'm wondering what you would do if some somebody else called you a dummy. Would you put up with it? Or would you, if a friend of yours was struggling with her phone, would you call her a dummy? No. Why not? Well, that's really mean. It's not fair. And helping people to notice these patterns of, and she said, oh, I was just, Making a joke, and I said no. But th- you know that was the word that you used, and it gives us a little bit of insight on how you're thinking about yourself. So, you know, I really harp on language a lot, but not. I, I try to make it clear that I'm not being pedantic, and I explain to patients why I'm, you know, being so vigilant about language and the difference that it makes. And I, I find that it's very effective and that it makes a big difference. I think there's, there's another piece here, too, looking at overall all of the different things we can do to avoid making patients feel blamed and shamed and scolded, which is the concept of weight bias, which you kind of alluded to earlier, that there is a pervasive bias about people and stereotypes about people who have a high weight or who have a obesity, um, that they're lazy, that they're not as smart, that they don't have self-control. And what's interesting in the research about this is that most stigmatized groups, members of those groups don't also believe the stigmatizing ideas about themselves. But people with obesity are pretty much the only stigmatized outgroup that also holds stigmatizing beliefs about people with obesity, with with their same condition. And this is challenging and worrisome for a lot of reasons, but there's a new line of research um, and more and more is being contributed to this body of knowledge all the time looking at internalized weight bias. So um, how much does the person stigmatize themselves because of their weight and believe various biases about people with obesity and themselves? And it turns out that being subjected to weight bias from other people is actually less damaging than if you've internalized the weight bias. And internalized weight bias is being found to be associated with all kinds of adverse mental and physical health outcomes, that it's related to eating disorder pathology. It's related to cardiometabolic risk factors, that people with internalized weight bias are at more risk for having these cardiometabolic risk factors and um, depression and all kinds of other, you know, very adverse outcomes. So anything we can do to not only not subject people to weight bias, but to Try to model um, and elicit a change in someone's own internalized weight bias is is really important. It sounds
1: like there are a lot of powerful opportunities there for that uh, that we'll be able to take advantage of
2: yes, I, I i I think of especially the first meeting with a patient as being full of lots of opportunities for what I actually have a I call them mini interventions. Where just the way you phrase a question or little bits of education and information can be very, very powerful.
1: And so uh, we're kind of running short on time now. So there were two more issues that uh, that I wanted to discuss, and one of them is exercise. What is the one exercise that you tell all of your patients to do? No, clearly (laughs) that's not uh, recommending here, but. Exercise among certain circles is considered a four-letter word, mm-hmm. right? So, um, some people love to exercise; some people don't. Um, so, clearly, it has health benefits. One of which may not be weight loss. So, first, can you can you can you men- can you discuss that? And two, how is it that you do discuss phys- exercise? I almost gave away yeah. the answer. Uh, that you just exercise with your patients.
2: So I will start I'll start there and say that I almost never use the word exercise with patients. If you think about it, and, and for people who are listening right now, when I say the word exercise, think about what picture immediately comes into your mind. Um some of you may have wonderful, happy pictures coming into your mind. But even though I'm someone who does physical activity six days a week, when I hear the word exercise, I imagine uh, my miserable experiences in gym class, not being able to climb up the rope or having to run laps or, you know, whatever it is. People have very...
1: Getting picked last for kickball. Right.
2: Well, uh, certainly. Or being first out in dodgeball or, you know, whatever it is. Um, But people have very there's a lot of uh, negative baggage and connotation to the word exercise. And and people think of exercise in a really circumscribed way. They think of it as something that has to be hard and unpleasant um, and that you're sweating a lot or that it's painful and that whole no pain, no gain thing. Um, So I refer to exercise almost exclusively as physical activity because First of all, you get away from these painful connotations of what exercise is. And second of all, you're just by using that phrase, you're opening up the menu of things that people can do that will get them moving, you know, rev up their heart rate, burn calories, make them stronger, um, you know. A patient will, one of my patients walks a half an hour to and from the office every day. And when I say, well, what are you doing for physical activity? They say nothing. And then they say, well, except I just, I walk to and from work. Well, they're walking an hour a day. I'll say, well, that's physical activity. Or when we're trying to find ways of increasing physical activity, looking at things that can be done that might be enjoyable, or at least not miserable. So a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to run. I'm not going jogging. I say, You don't have to run. Running's not required. Running's actually very hard on your body. And if you don't love it, absolutely don't do it. Let's find something that you find pleasant. So I often prescribe 20-minute daily dance parties for my patients and their partners or my patients and their children. And I have a patient who her son is putting together playlists for her to do and they're He's making them an increasing length, but he's putting together lists of songs that she can dance around the house to uh, by herself or with him and that's fun and people don't think of that as being exercise but if you're moving around and your heart rate's going and you're sweating, just because it's fun doesn't make it not exercise so or I talk about you know instead of driving five minutes to the store walk 20 minutes to the store that's physical activity so it it Broadens the realm of things that can be done and includes things that might be fun or enjoyable or at least not miserable.
1: So we tend we tend to be very prescriptive about exercise, right? You have to do it this number of days a week. Uh, your heart rate needs to get this above this amount. It needs to be for this period of time. And the fact of the matter is, if you tell your patients to do that, they're not going to do it, and that helps them exactly, exactly. zero. So maybe additional benefits to raising your heart rate past X or doing it X number of times a week for X period of time. Uh, I should probably have different variables than just X, but we should stop being so prescriptive and work from their current Y and go to Y plus one. So we take what they're currently doing and one, allow them to recognize that they're doing it and that should be something that they can internalize as something positive. Oh, I thought of myself as such a lazy person, but now you're telling me because I walk an hour a day, maybe I'm not that that lazy. Right. Maybe I'm not this lazy person. Maybe I am an active person. And if they start thinking of themselves differently, and I think that even gets to like Carol Dweck's mindset research mm-hmm. about you know changing, changing their mindset. I am an active person and I can be more active.
2: Definitely. Um, And I think going for not saying, okay, the guidelines for weight loss are, and they actually are, that you should do 300 minutes of aerobic activity per week. That's, tell tell that to almost anybody and it just sounds like impossible. Certainly anybody who's got a life, who's got a job, who's got a partner, who's got kids, that's a lot of time. But if you simply talk about what are you doing now, what in, in what way could we increase it beyond what you're doing now, and just sort of progressively increase it? Again, I think we're getting into territory where it's a whole different podcast about behavior change and smart goal setting, which I'm happy to talk about at another time. Um, but I think that starting off with the language that you're using and talking about physical activity and what activities could be done that are enjoyable or at least tolerable. Uh, rather than saying you need to exercise more. People know they need to exercise more. They're not going to thank you for telling them that and telling them that is not going to make them do it.
1: And what I find with my patients it's that is often the first thing that they say uh, like a defensive well, you know, I I I don't have any time to exercise. And and then being able to reframe that I think it, is very helpful. And the other the other is which is something that we've discussed before is not saying something like, well, why aren't you more physically active or why aren't you exercise? What are you,
2: what are you doing for physical activity? Nothing. Why not? That is, that is the wrong way to ask about it because it, it it certainly overtly sounds judgmental. Why not? Um, And it puts the patient on the defensive and they feel the need to be giving excuses and it's, it's interesting because so the way i ask about this is not why not i say what gets in the way and i choose those words very deliberately because just by asking the question in that way you are acknowledging that there are things that get in the way And that they're not just being ludicrously lazy by not being active. There's reasons why they're not active. And so uh, I will say what gets in the way. And very, very often the patient will tell me I'm lazy. And I'm usually very much able by that point to counter the patient and to point out evidence from things I've already learned about them in the interview to show that they're not lazy. They're working three jobs plus raising kids on their own. Or, you know, they, you know, they're, they have earned a, a, a bachelor's degree going to night school or, you know, things that clearly indicate that they're not lazy. And I say, well, you know what? A lot of people come in here and try to tell me they're lazy, but the fact is here's the evidence that you're not lazy. And, and in fact, if I just accept that you're lazy, that really doesn't get anywhere. That doesn't that doesn't get us anywhere because there's not much that we can do about that. But instead, if we take a look at what the reasons are, so a lot of times a patient will a patient will say, "Well, I don't really have a lot of time," but I know that's just an excuse. And I'll say, "Listen, you know what? I don't think about this in terms of excuses or." good reasons or bad reasons. I simply look at reasons and whatever the reasons are, understanding the reasons that you aren't doing more physical activity will point us to the right intervention to help you increase it. And, you know, like I, I had one patient who initially it looked like the reason she wasn't doing any physical activity was that she was too busy. But in fact, the real reason she wasn't doing it is that she found it really boring and if we were able to find something that she found engaging that was something she felt she could make time for so really understanding the reasons and not judging the reasons as being valid or not but if someone said I don't go to my gym because someone died in there and now I think it's haunted I wouldn't say well that's ridiculous just go to the gym I say all right well let's could we get a a priest in there to do an exorcism or, or a more parsimonious solution might be to find a different gym or to do some stuff at home or outside walking around in your neighborhood instead of going to that gym, instead of getting caught up in, that's a dumb reason. Okay. That's the reason. What do we do about it? You know? Yeah.
1: That seems a pretty easy way to alienate your patient.
2: I mean, I, I had a patient who, had a real phobia. He, he had bad asthma. And so he was really convinced that if he did any physical activity, he'd have an asthma attack and die. And he walked around everywhere with four asthma inhalers on him like a backup to the backup to the backup. And this was such, a, such an extreme fear. It really was, it, it really met the definition of a phobia. And I actually sent him for cognitive behavioral therapy to address the phobia. And I wasn't going to say, look, your doctor said you're fine. Your pulmonologist said you're fine. Just go do it. He had a phobia. So we addressed that. So why doesn't help? But if you ask, what are the barriers? What's getting in the way? That leads you and the patient together to a solution. So that's a much more productive way to be having a dialogue about it.
1: Wow. This was really a a very comprehensive talk. And we didn't even get into. Effective methods for for weight loss, um, uh, as we knew we weren't weren't going to. It's just the topic of how to even have that conversation. So there are many wrong ways to do it, but I think this was a great, great in depth, detailed look at how to do it most effectively. So I, I I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us and and help us have these difficult conversations more effectively. Um, Is there anything else that you want to mention uh, before we close the conversation? Oh,
2: I think that there's dozens of other things that could be said, but I think, you know, this this was a pretty good sampling, and and thanks for for being such a good guide through these topics and being so interested. I'm always thrilled when someone cares about these things and wants to learn more, so that's wonderful.
1: Dr. Sog, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.
2: All right.
0: Have a good night. That was Dr. Bradley Block at The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Find all previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and write us a review. You can also visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash physician's guide to doctoring. If you are interested in being a guest or have a question for a prior guest, send a message or post a comment.